Chapter 9 of Operation Terror by Murray Leinster. Read by Mark Nelson. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Operation Terror. Chapter 9. It was very likely that at that moment Lockley despised himself more bitterly than any other man alive. He blamed himself absolutely for Jill's capture. If there were humans acting with the alien invaders, her fate would unquestionably be more horrible than at the hands of the monsters alone. After all, there was one nation most likely to deal with extraterrestrial creatures to help them in the conquest of Earth, and its troops were not notorious for their kindly behavior to civilians. And Jill was their captive. He'd been carried past the place where a terror beam blocked the road. The military markings might mean the car was stolen, or that its markings and paint were counterfeit. It seemed certain that Jill had gone up to it, in confidence, that there could be only American soldiers in such a car, and when near it found out her mistake too late. These were not things that Lockley thought out in detail at the beginning. He ran after the car like a madman, unable to feel anything but horror, and so terrible a fury that it should have killed its objects by sheer intensity. Presently he heard hoarse, gasping sounds. He realized that the sounds were the breath going in and out of his own throat, while Jill was carried farther and farther away from him in a car which traveled ten yards to his one. He sobbed then, and suddenly he was strangely and unnaturally calm. He was able to think quite coolly. The only difference between this and normal thinking was that now he could only think about one thing, full and complete and terrible revenge for the crimes committed and to be committed against Jill. She would be taken to Boulder Lake, so he would go to Boulder Lake, and somehow, in some manner, he would destroy utterly all living things there and every trace of their coming. Which, of course, was both natural and unreasonable, but reason would have been unnatural at such a time as this. He moved along the highway in a passion of ultimate resolve. In the rest of the world time passed without knowledge of his emotional state. The rest of the world was suffering emotional agonies of its own. The United States had become popular among peoples who disliked all things American except those they were given free and who continued to dislike the givers. Now, though, the United States had been invaded from space by creatures using weapons of unprecedented type and effect. If the United States were conquered, there was no other nation likely to remain free. So a great deal of anti-Americanism faded under pressure of an ardent desire for America to be successful in its self-defense. Moreover, Anticipating other alien landings which could take place anywhere, the United States offered to share its stock of atom bombs with any nation so invaded. American popularity increased. The fact that the USSR made no such proposal also had its effect. The United States invited scientists of every country to help in solving the menace of the terror beam, and committed itself to share any discoveries for defense against it with all the world. Again, there was an improvement in the public image of the United States abroad. But Lockley knew nothing of this. 
His pocket radio no longer existed to give him news. It had been rebuilt into something else, whose most conspicuous parts were cheese and nutmeg graters, slung over his shoulder as he marched. But if he had known of changes in the popularity of his country, he wouldn't have been interested. He could fix his mind only on one subject and matters related to it. He tramped along the highway, possessed by a cold demon of hatred. He was on foot for lack of a car. He was unarmed. At the moment he believed that all the rest of humanity was disarmed, in effect if not in fact. So he had no plans, only an infinite hatred. But because he would have to pass through terror beams to get at those he meant to destroy, he realized that it was necessary to make sure that he would be able to pass through them, that his equipment for reaching Boulder Lake was in good order. It was still turned on. He turned it off to be economical of its batteries. He went on, thinking of only one subject, examining every possibility for revenge with a passionate patience, undiscouraged because one idea after another was plainly impossible, but continuing obsessively to think of others. He smelled the fetid odor, which cut through his absorption because of its connotations. He turned on his device and went doggedly ahead. He knew he had entered a terror beam by the faint perceptions which came through the cloud of ions his instruments produced. Then they ceased. He knew that the beam had been cut off. He heard a motor rev up. A car or truck had stopped beyond the road-blocking beam and waited for it to be cut off as it had been. Lockley stepped into the woods, hating the vehicle bitterly as it approached, but wanting to save destruction for those where Jill had been taken. He was hidden when the car appeared. It was a perfectly commonplace car with a whip aerial at its rear. It came confidently along the highway. A hundred yards from him there were explosions. Smoke came out of the open windows. The engine stopped and the car bucked crazily and went into the ditch beside the highway. A man plunged out, slapping at his leg. A revolver in its holster had exploded all its shells. The leather holster had saved him from serious injury, but his clothing was on fire. Other men, two of them, got out hastily. Things had exploded in the back of the car, too. The three men swore agitatedly. Then one of them said something which stimulated the others to frantic flight down the highway away from the ditched car. The third man limped anxiously after the faster-moving two. Lockley, watching and hating with undivided attention, knew when the terror beam came on. He felt it, very faint because of his protection, but quite distinct. The explosions had taken place when the car was in the area now covered again by the terror beam. The men in the car, astonished and scorched, had fled because the beam was due to come back on and they didn't want to be caught in it. Lockley noted that the human confederates of the monsters had no protection against the beam to match his own. Perhaps the monsters themselves were protected only near the projectors. This was an item affecting his plans of revenge for Jill. He stored it away in his mind. Then he realized that the weapons in the car had exploded just like the pistol on his own seat cushion. The explosion was not associated with the terror beam. There had been no beam in action when his own pistol blew up. 
it did not seem reasonable that if the monsters possessed a detonation beam that they turn it on their own confederates. No, rational beings would do nothing so self-contradictory. Then Lockley looked down at the cheese-grater pocket radio device of his own manufacture. He considered the fact that his own pistol had exploded the instant he turned the gadget on. The weapons in the other car detonated when that car was near him. He plodded onward thinking very clearly and precisely about the matter. He even remembered to turn off his gadget because he would need to avenge Jill. But when he tried to think of any subject unconnected with revenge, his mind became confused and agitated. Two miles along the highway, which had not yet turned to head in toward Boulder Lake, there was a farmhouse. Lockley walked heavily to the abandoned building. He found the door locked. Without conscious thought, he forced it. He searched the closets. He found a shotgun and half a box of shells. He considered them, then left the gun and all the shells but three. He went out. Presently, he laid a shotgun shell down on the road. He paced off twenty-five yards and dropped another. He dropped a third twenty-five yards farther on, and then carefully counted off three hundred feet. The car had been just about that far away when the explosions came. He turned on his device. Two of the three shells exploded smokily. The farthest away did not explode. He did not rejoice. He went on without elation but it became part of his painstaking search for vengeance that he knew he could set off explosives within a hundred and twenty-five yards of himself. There was something about the device he'd constructed which made explosives detonate up to a distance of a little over one hundred yards. He felt no curiosity about it, though it was simple enough. The heterodyning of extremely saw-toothed waves produced peaks of energy until the saw-teeth began to smooth out. There were infinitesimal spots in which, for infinitesimal lengths of time, energy conditions comparable to sparks existed. This had not been worked out in advance, but the reason was clear. He came to the place where the main highway to Boulder Lake branched off from the road he was following. He turned into it, walking doggedly. Three miles toward the lake, an engine sounded from behind him. He got off the highway and turned the switch. A half-ton truck came trundling openly along the road. It came closer and closer. Small arm ammunition exploded. The engine stopped and the light truck toppled over onto its side. Lockley did not approach it. Its driver might not be dead, and he would not find it possible to leave any man alive who was associated with Jill's captors. He passed the truck and went on up the highway. Seven miles up the road a truck came down from Boulder Lake. Lockley placed himself discreetly out of sight. He turned on his instrument. A gun flew to pieces with a thunderous detonation. The truck crashed. It was interesting to Lockley that automobile engines invariably went dead at about the time that explosives went off. The fact was, of course, that ionized air is more or less conductive. In an ion cloud, the spark plug shorted and did not fire in the cylinders. There were two other vehicles which essayed to pass Lockley as he went on up the long way to the lake. Both came from the interior of the park. He left them wrecked beside the highway. Between times, 
he walked with a dogged grimness toward the place where Vale had been the first to report a thing come down from the sky. That had been how many days ago? Three? Four? Then Lockley had been a quiet and well-conducted citizen, inclined to pessimism about future events, but duly considerate of the rights of others. Now he'd changed. He felt only one emotion, which was hatred such as he'd never imagined before. He had only one motive, which was to take total and annihilating vengeance for what had been done to Jill. He plodded on and on. He had to make a march of not less than twenty miles from the park's beginning. He journeyed on foot, because there were terror beams to pass, and automobile engines did not run when his protective device operated. He could not arm himself from the cars that ditched, because all chemical explosive weapons and their ammunition blew at the same time. He was a minute figure among the mountains, marching alone upon a winding highway moving resolutely to destroy, alone, the invaders from outer space and the men who worked with them for the conquest of Earth. For his purpose he carried the strangest of equipment, a device made of a pocket radio and a cheese grater. He had food in his pockets, but he could not eat. During the afternoon he became impatient of its weight and threw it away. But he thirsted often. More than once he drank from small streams over which the highway builders had made small concrete bridges. At three in the afternoon a truck came up from behind. Here he trudged between steep cliffs which made him seem almost a midget. The highway went through a crevice between adjoining mountainsides. There was no place for him to conceal himself. When he heard the engine he stopped and faced it. The truck had picked up many men from wrecked cars along its route. They were scorched and scratched and wounded men, hurt by the explosion of their firearms. The truck brought them along and overtook Lockley. He waited very calmly, since it did not seem likely that they would realize that one man had caused the crashes. The driver of the truck with the picked-up men did not even think of such a thing. Lockley seemed much more likely the victim of still another wreck. The overtaking truck slowed down. There would be no strangers in Boulder Lake Park. There would be only the task force aiding the monsters, as Lockley reasoned it out. So the truck slowed, preparatory to taking Lockley aboard. At a hundred and twenty-five yards from Lockley, weapons in the truck cab blew themselves violently apart. The engine, stopped in gear, acted as a violently applied brake. The truck swerved off the highway. It turned over and was still. Lockley turned and walked on. He considered coldly that it was perfectly safe for him to go on. There were no weapons left behind him. The men themselves were shaken up. They would attempt to make no trouble beyond a report of their situation and a plea for help. The report could be made by the radio, which was not smashed. Half an hour later Lockley felt the tingling which meant that his instrument was protecting him from a terror beam. The tingling lasted only a short time, but fifteen minutes later it came back. Then it returned at odd intervals. Five minutes, eight, ten, three, six, one. Each time the terror beam should have paralyzed him and caused intense suffering. A man with no protective device would have had his nerves shattered by torment 
coming so violently at unpredictable intervals. Lockley tried to reason out why this nerve-racking application of the terror beam hadn't been used before. To an unprotected man, it would be worse than continuous pain. No living man could remain able to resist any demand if exposed to such torture. The beam was evidently swung at random intervals, and the phenomenon lasted for an hour and a half. Anyone but Lockley behind a cloud of ions would have been reduced to shivering hysteria. Then, suddenly, the beaming stopped. But Lockley left his device in operation. Half an hour later still, close to five o'clock, it appeared that the invaders assumed that any enemy should have been softened up for capture. They sent an expedition to find out what had happened to their trucks and cars. Lockley saw four cars and a light truck in close formation moving toward him from the lake. They were close, as if for mutual protection. They moved steadily, as if inviting the fate that had overtaken the others. The shortwave reports from smashed trucks seemed improbable to them, but the expedition was equipped to investigate even such unlikely happenings. The four cars in the lead contained five men each. Each man was armed with a rifle containing a single cartridge in its chamber and none in its magazine. The rifles pointed straight up. There was more ammunition in the light truck behind, and it was in clips for ready use, but the truck body was of iron. If that ammunition detonated, it could do no harm. If it did not, it would be available for use against the single man mentioned by the driver of the last truck to be wrecked. But Lockley saw them coming. They came sedately down a long, straight stretch of road. He climbed a rocky wall beside the highway to a little ravine that led away from the road. He posted himself where he was extremely unlikely to be seen. Then he waited. The cavalcade of cars appeared. It drove briskly toward Lockley at something like thirty miles an hour. Perhaps ten yards separated the lead car from the second. The truck was a trifle closer to the four man-carrying vehicles. They swept along, every man alert. They would pass forty feet below Lockley. He did nothing. His device was already turned on. He watched in detached calm. The lead car stopped as if it had run into a brick wall, while rifles inside it blew holes in its top. The second car crashed into it, rifles detonating. The third car, the fourth. The truck piled into the others with a gigantic flare and furious report, each separate brass cartridge case exploding in the same instant. The truck became scrap iron. Lockley went away along the small ravine. From now on he would avoid the highway. He estimated that he would arrive at Boulder Lake itself about half an hour after dark. It occurred to him that then Jill would have been a prisoner of the invaders for something more than twelve hours, at least ten of them at their headquarters. Before he began the climb that would take him to the invaders, Lockley stopped at a small stream. He drank thirstily. End of chapter 9